the name of God who loves us, who once walked among us, and who spurs us ever on. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So the story goes, and I have it under, under considerably good authority that it is a true story. The story goes that the great comedic actor, misogynist, child hater, and world-class drinker, W.C. Fields was once caught by a friend reading the Bible. And his friend, finding W.C. in such a very unusual position, said to him, W.C., what are you doing? And without missing a beat, W.C. Fields said, looking for loopholes. <laughs> so I think um, of all of the texts that we've come across in quite a while, Today's readings, this morning's readings, would be those which might be fruitful to be looking for loopholes. I don't remember a time when three texts in, a, in the same lectionary were as complex and as important as these three texts this morning. The reading this morning from Genesis is really sets the foundation for the chosen people. What does it mean to be the chosen people of God? a conversation that continues with great energy right up until today. The reading from Romans, Paul's reading sets the stage for, for that sense of, of, of faith versus law. And Paul, this is the fourth chapter in Romans, Paul will continue this conversation now for quite some time, talking about the relationship between the law and faith, the law and grace. And finally, of course, in Mark's gospel this morning, we have this piece that talks about taking up one's cross and following Jesus um, to Calvary. Again, another complicated um, and, and deep piece of the Bible. You know, it strikes me that there are different ways that I read the Bible, and I wonder if maybe you do too. It's possible to read the Bible in a very devotional way and just sort of let the words of the Bible um, sink in and, and almost as a prayer and then there is, there is the opportunity to look at the Bible in a more critical way, to, to look at the Bible in such a way as to what might it instruct me about me, but also maybe what it might instruct me about those who, who lived, the, the first generation who lived whatever these words are. So the Bible is a very complicated um, living entity in my life, and I hope in yours too. And there are very many different ways that we can approach the Bible, I and mean, we can accept the words from the Bible. It's interesting that in this morning's colic, it talks about the word and, and the truth in the word, but the truth in the word is not small case w, it's large case w. This morning's colic talks about the word as being, as John talked about it in his gospel, the word being Jesus, the word not necessarily being the scripture. So truth in the word, capital W. So if I were to title this sermon, which I rarely do, I would title the sermon, When Words, Small Case, When Words Fail. When Words Fail. Bear that in mind as I continue this morning. So rather than go through all three, I found out in, in, this, in the first service that this, this sermon is quite long enough. Rather than go through all three of those readings, I want to focus on, some of you are smiling and some of you are looking very dismal, very dismal. This morning, I want to focus on that Markin piece, the piece from Mark's Gospel. 
in talking about the complicated nature, the very deep nature of the Bible, let's first talk a little bit about what we know about that. Because in actuality, there's very little that we know about Mark's gospel in terms of its, of, of its, of its um, orientation, in its origination, rather, is what I mean. We really don't know who wrote Mark's gospel. We really don't know when Mark's gospel was written, although there's some indication that it was written right about the time of the great Jewish, revolu the great Jewish um, revolt in, in Jerusalem, because they talk about a little bit about the fall of the temple. But we're not sure. So it makes it about 70 A.D., 30 years or so after Jesus' death, but we're not sure exactly that's if that's true or not. We could be looking back historically. So we don't know exactly who wrote it. We don't know where it was written. It could have been written um, in, in Jerusalem itself for that community. It could have been written in Rome, as far as we know. It could have been written in Antioch in Asia Minor. So we don't know where it was written. We don't know when it was written. We're not sure who wrote it. So that's what we start with. That's the very basis of, of these words that we, that we have, is what we don't know. What we do know is that it was probably the first gospel written, probably, because um, Matthew and Luke seem to take things out of this gospel when they write their gospels 20 or 30 years later. We also know it was written in a very rough Greek. It was not written in, in a polished format, probably not written by a scholar, um, because we know that Luke and Matthew actually cleaned up the grammar. So what Mark wrote, um, the other writers after him sort of cleaned up his, his, his language a little bit. So it was probably written by a not terribly educated person. We also know that, that it is, it, there's no birth narrative, there's no childhood of Jesus in this story at all, and there's no resurrection in this story. This story really starts with Jesus' ministry, and, and it ends with, with, with the empty tomb. So out of all the four Gospels, Mark is the only Gospel that really focuses entirely on Jesus' ministry, entirely on those years when Jesus was in public life doing active ministry. So what we do know is, is that, that Mark wrote this in, in a way that, that the language that he used seems to make this thing run. It, it makes it... It makes it um, pick up speed like a freight train and go faster and faster and faster and faster until we get to the very end. One of the ways that he does that is he uses the word and for punctuation. So rather than having any sort of a punctuational, they didn't have punctuation anyway, but any sort of a, of a breaking point, you know, a breath point, he would just say kai, K-A-I in Greek is and, 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 and. It kept going and going and going until it gets finally to the cross. So many have said that what Mark's gospel is, is a long prologue that leads to the cross. And that's really what Mark wants to do, is he wants to focus all on, on, that, on that last, that, the ultimate moment, which is, couldn't be any further from the truth. Um, when you look at this gospel carefully, it's, it's superbly written. It's got great tension in it. It's got amazing stories in it. It's got great motion. It moves from place to place. Um, it really is a brilliant piece of literature in and of itself. However accomplished a writer Mark was, the reality is Mark really knew how to tell a story. He really knew how to tell a story. And he really did a good job. So part of our understanding of this is to see the language that he used and what maybe he was talking about when he was relating this, the life of this individual, or at least three or four years of the life of this individual Jesus. And really, what was he getting at? Where was he going with this? Now, it's very difficult for me at times to separate 
any historical understanding of Jesus. This is who Jesus was. From that sense, of this is who Mark said Jesus was. Mark didn't write this gospel. None of the gospels was written as history. So there wasn't any fact checker that was there going back and saying, you, you know, this didn't really happen and that really happened on this day or that day. That whole understanding of, 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 of a historical um, um, veracity just didn't exist. So it's hard to separate what Jesus actually said, Mark didn't hear it for sure, what, what, what Jesus actually said and did as opposed to what Mark has heard and what Mark has translated internally and what Mark has used. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. In this morning's reading, this, this rather compact and, and at times apparently difficult reading, I want to take three pieces of that and I want to look at that with you and I want to give you an alternative view. Now, I'm not saying that this is gospel. <laughs> what I'm saying is I want you to think about maybe looking at this in a different way with me this morning, and maybe this will be food for thought. So which means that you've got to wake up, you've got to be ready, because we're going to move pretty quick, and I want you to think about these particular things. All right, are you with me on that? All right, here we go. First thing I want you to think about is this sense of prediction. Now, in Mark's gospel, Jesus three times predicts his death. This is actually the first time that M Mark has Jesus say, I'm telling you, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and three days I'm going to be raised from the dead. Now that's problematic for me, and it has been for many others, because, because what is the nature of Jesus that he can predict what's going to happen in the future? And I don't think what Mark wants us to believe is that Jesus is, is some kind of a, a palm reader. I don't think that Mark wants us to think that, that Jesus has a crystal ball in the back room and that Jesus can foretell the future um, in, in some sort of a hocus-pocus way. Jesus is not a, a magician for Mark. But neither am I convinced that Mark believes that Jesus has this sort of all-knowledge, this all-understanding of what's going to happen forever and ever, and so therefore Jesus knows the future knows exactly what's going to happen, and is just cueing everybody else in and letting everybody else in on that because, um, because God has already told him exactly what's going to happen. On April 7th, you know, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and on the 8th, they're going to hang you on the cross, and on the 9th, you're going to be in Hades, and on the 11th, you're going to be raised from the dead, and we're going to call it Easter, and there's going to be a bunny. I don't think any of that, any of that was in Jesus' mind. And I don't think Mark wants us to think that any of that was in Jesus' mind. If that had been the case, then why would Mark have had Jesus say on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If, if those words ring true, and they do for me, Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That would not be the same individual who would have said, listen, don't worry about it three days, and I'm going to come back, and we're going to be okay with the party. I don't think it's the same man. And this is what I mean by words fail. When words fail, because if that's not what Mark means, either of those two things, Jesus as, as magician or Jesus as God, simply in a human form, if that's not what Mark means, then where is Mark going with this sense of Jesus being able to predict his death three times? I think. Think about this with me. I think because Mark can't really describe this relationship, 
the intimacy of this relationship, the depth of this relationship, because there are really no words, there really are no words, to describe the relationship between Jesus and God, because it was such an intimate and close relationship, one that we can't really fathom, that these were the only words that Mark had to describe what that relationship was like. Listen, I think Mark was trying to say, Jesus was so in tune with God and so in tune with what God's plan was, not just for him, for the world, because they were so close, because Jesus was so close to God that Jesus actually knew in his heart of hearts the plan. I think what Mark is saying, now that's as close as you could possibly get. Jesus as a human being was so close to the divine that he actually understood on some fundamental level what, what it meant to be alive, what it meant to be this lover of God and be, have God love him back. And in that, in that loving, the depth of that loving, what Jesus understood was that there was a plan that God had for him and that that plan was definite and that it was purposeful and, the, and that it would have impact. Now, if that's true, then, then what Mark is saying is, is that you, we, me, you, we have a, an opportunity to have a, re, to have a relationship with God that is similar to that relationship. <coughs> Not that we could foretell the future, but we continue to try to find out what that is, the plan that God has for us. If we assume, and I do, the fact that, that God is active in my life in a, in a, in a, in a, in a purposeful way, that God has a purpose for my life, then the closer I get to God, the more I will understand what that purpose is. You see where I'm going with this? God was so close to Jesus that Jesus knew the purpose of his life. Which one of us would not want to have some sense of the purposefulness of our lives? The question, that existential question, why am I here? That question at the core of each and every one of us, Jesus seemed to know the answer to. You are here because you have purpose and because that purpose will have impact on the world. No one had impact like Jesus on this world. No one. Because his relationship was so intimate. And which of us do not desire a closer relationship with God? So the closer we get to God, the more we understand our purpose and the more fulfilled we are in that relationship and the more impact we have in the world around us. That's the first one. It's not Jesus as, as, as magician. It's not Jesus as God clothed in human form. It's a man, a human being, who has this deep, deep abiding relationship with God. And in that relationship, Jesus finds purpose. Courage, courage, and vision. We talk a lot up here about courage and vision. The more we get relationship with God, the more we have that sense of what our purpose is and the more we will find the courage and the vision to live into, to live into that relationship. That's, I believe, what Mark is talking about. The second piece that is so, I think, important to think about and, and, and instrumental in Mark's understanding of who Jesus was is this whole piece about the Messiah and, and what's called the Son of Man. Let's talk about that just a little bit. The Messiah, as it has been seen um, throughout Jewish history, is, is that who will, who will come and who will 
will um, overcome the oppressor through military might and will, don't stand out there, come in, <laughs> who, will, who will overcome the military might of his time like David did and, and like Elijah did. These were archetypal figures of the Messiah. And what did they do? They had armies. They had swords. They slew people, lots of people. Elijah, Moses, remember a couple of weeks ago on the Mountain of Transfiguration? That was all about having the power, the military might to overcome the oppressor. How did you do that? You went to war. You went to war. Now that was that understanding of the Messiah. And, and when, when Jesus continues to castigate his disciples, it's not because they're stupid. It's not because he wants them to appear to be dunces or something. It's because they don't get it right. They want Jesus to be the Messiah that's in the form that they know, that they know. If we back up a little bit from this morning's reading, which I'm going to do, just a little bit, because I think it helps us to understand... Um, See, we, we keep coming back and forth, so it's so hard to... Jesus went to, with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Most of these individuals, maybe not John the Baptist, but they're, they're, they are those archetypal figures of, of, of the conqueror, Elijah, the prophet. And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And Jesus ordered him, them, not to tell anyone. And then, in the piece that we read, Jesus rebukes Peter when Peter says, don't go there. Now what happens here, I believe, is, is, that, is, is that Peter believes that Jesus is supposed to be the Messiah in the same way that Elijah was supposed to be the Messiah. Raise an army, get a sword, Go slew a lot of people, and let's win. And what Jesus keeps saying over and over and over again is, don't put me in that box. I will not be, I refuse to accept that title as Messiah. I will not be one who uses violence to overthrow the oppressor. Jesus was that individual who talked about nonviolent ways of, of, of fulfilling the purpose that God gave to him, not raising an army but showing through God's love the truth of who he was and what the world was around him. He refused over and over and over again to get in that box. The, the, the words that is used here, Jesus rebuked Peter, Peter rebuked Jesus, those are the same words that are used earlier in the Gospel of Mark to talk about Jesus rebuking the demons. Jesus rebuked the demons for the same reason. The demons were trying to put Jesus in a box. I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. You're the Messiah. And Jesus rebuked them because Jesus refused to accept that definition of who he was. He was not the conqueror like David who would come with a sword and kill the enemy. And he refused that title. And he refused that description of what, of what the Messiah was. Instead, instead, Jesus assumed another understanding. You know, in Mark's gospel, and very rarely in any of the gospels, does Jesus call himself the Son of God. Jesus calls himself, rather, the Son of Man. Now, what we've done is we've taken that Son of Man, and we've capitalized the S and the M, and we've taken Son of Man and said, 
Son of Man equals Son of God equals Messiah, capital M. The same, but they're not the same. They're nowhere near the same. Jesus was not calling himself Son of Man, capital S, capital M, same as Son of God. Actually, Jesus was, was using that terminology to talk about something entirely different. Son of Man, small case M, small case S and M, is for us parlance, what we would say, a child of humanity. I am, Jesus said, a child of humanity. Now that puts the emphasis not just on child, but on the human piece of this, the corporate piece of this. I am, Jesus said, one of you. I am a child of the human species, like you are a child of the human species. And rather than exalting himself or allowing himself to be exalted in some new place, Jesus was actually saying, me and my purpose, my nature, my very being is centered right in the middle of you, in the people. I am simply a child of humanity. Now, wonderful man named Walter Wink wrote a great book on this, on this subject, and, and just a little piece of that, he says, there is something irreducibly mythic about this enigmatic son of man. It glows without a, with a halo of overdetermined meaning. What it's saying is that we've built this thing up to be something that it's not. It possesses singular numinosity. It has particular mysterious meaning. But it has no story. There is no drama of creation, redemption, or the founding of a people. There is no narrative. There is no pattern. We seem to have a mythic figure, son of man, without a myth. It was the seminal contribution of Elizabeth Howes, his teacher, to develop the insight that the Son of Man was not a title, nickname, circumlocution, or myth, but an archetypal image. As such, she saw the image functions as a symbol of wholeness, less august and almighty than the Messiah or Christ, more mundane and daily than the, more mundane and daily than the heroes of myth. She saw the image more as a catalytic agent of transformation. A catalytic agent of transformation. That Jesus was not calling himself son of God. Jesus was calling himself an agent of human transformation. Jesus' purpose was to show all of humanity that through my understanding of who God has me being, my courage, my purpose, I am an agent of transformation. A catalytic, am I saying that right? Er, um, agent of transformation. That is my understanding of myself that I am an agent of change. An agent of change. And that's Jesus' purpose. Son of man is all about transformation. Having the, the courage and the vision to change. Now Jesus says, I am not, don't call me the Messiah, capital M, don't call me Son of God, capital S, capital G. I am a child of humanity, and my purpose is to change. And my purpose is to see the world change around me. The third thing I want to talk about before I quit is this take up your cross and follow me piece of it. Now, the more I read that, the more I understand that what we have read into that forever is, is, is an understanding of the cross that Jesus and Mark could never possibly have assumed. 
that our understanding of the cross as being expiation for sin, capital S, that our understanding that Jesus had to die on the cross to expiate the sin of humanity was nowhere near the awareness that Jesus could possibly have had. That sense of it called atonement, the substitutionary atonement. Jesus died on the sins because we are so awful. God was so angry with humanity that he had to sacrifice Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus would not have understood that. Mark would not have understood that. The cross in that period of time, in that place, was all about oppression. The cross was used by the Roman Empire to frighten to death, literally, the oppressed people who they hung on that cross. The cross was not even necessarily there for criminals. There are other ways, like stoning, that execution could happen. The cross was there particularly as an ugly symbol that we have power over you, that we, the Roman Empire, have so much power over you that you need to be fearful that this will happen to you. It was a symbol of oppression. It was a symbol of fear. And that Jesus accepting that cross was a revolutionary movement. That what Jesus was actually saying was, I am liberated from the fear that you want me to have. Jesus accepting the cross was about revolution. It was about overturning the oppressed so that those who are oppressed could see the light of day and have hope. And that, and that marks Jesus asking us to assume our cross, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus isn't saying feel guilty about your sins that happened before you were born, original sin. What, Jesus is say, what marks Jesus is saying is take up your cross and be a revolutionary. Be a liberator. Find that place in this moment where you can liberate yourself and in so doing, liberate the world around you. It is essentially a revolutionary moment, not a moment of guilt. To change, to transform, causes suffering. You know that, I know that. To change something in your life, even if you go on a diet, to change something in your life causes some pain. Suffer with me, Jesus said. Be willing to be brave enough to accept the change that has to happen for you to transform your life and to transform the world around you. It's not about feeling guilty. There's enough of that. It's about embracing the courage to change, to be better. It's not about being bad. It's about being better. It's all about being better. And the last point about this you know, and, and I love the, the journey talk, because uh, I'm really into the journey talk. We're on a journey. Lent's a journey. Let's travel through Lent. Let's move to the cross. Let's be on a journey. But you get enough journey talk, and you never get there. It's like, let's start another journey. Let's be on the journey. And I love the journey talk, but the cross is not about journey. The tr- cross is about now. It's about pony up. This is the moment. And I think, if anything, that this passage wants us to know is, when is your moment? When are you going to retire? When are you going to call your sister you haven't talked to in three years? When are you going to put the bottle down? When are you going to hug your child? This is the moment now. We're done talking, Jesus says, about the future. Come on a journey. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go back to Caesarea Philippi. No, now. 
And the least we can do as followers is as take the calendar out and look at the possible moment when the transformation will happen in our lives, in our world. It won't be July, and it won't be next November, because there'll be another November and another July. It'll, it'll have to be at some moment when we have the courage to say, now's the moment. Today, I'm stopping, and I'm starting to change. I'm transforming my life, and I have the courage to believe that will transform my family, my workplace, my school, those around me. Because we spend all, do we, question, do we spend all of our time on the journey? I'm getting ready. Getting ready. I'm going to take another walk. When do we stop and say, now? I'm standing up for what I believe in today. And if today's not the day, then I want you to ask yourselves, what might that day be? What might my day of liberation be? When might it be? It's okay. I, I, I wish we had time to get some back and forth, because I'd love to know what you're thinking. But we'll have to save that for another time. But I want you to think about just the possibility of looking at, at this particular story in a new light, in a new way. And that way has to do with liberation and transformation. How can this story, how can Jesus' life liberate me, free me from the chains that I find myself in? And how in that liberation can I find the power and the courage to change? To change. The colic today, the colic today, Remember, it said this. Be gracious, O Lord, to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again, with penitent hearts and steadfast faith, to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, capital W, and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word.